All right. Well, we're here for our latest edition of Main Street Sessions, where we profile innovative and interesting business leaders around the state. And I'm pleased today to be joined by not just one of the state's great business leaders, but also a great friend, uh, a guy named Scott Wester. Scott, how you doing? I'm doing great and I love for y'all to be doing this and glad to be here. Amen. So for those that don't know, Scott Wester is the president and CEO of Our Lady of the Lake Hospital. Um, which is a multifaceted institution with all kinds of different things. And we're going to talk about some of that stuff. But before we get into the business where you're at, let's talk about Scott the Guy. Tell us a little bit about who you are, kind of where you're from, and and more importantly, why did you get in healthcare to begin with? So I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. and um, Bengals fan? Bengals fan. Pre-borough And and I'll tell you a story about the Bengals to tie it back to um, a little bit about my education and so forth. So – Graduated from a Jesuit high school, so not a Blue Jay, but a bomber up in Cincinnati. Jesuit bombers. And um, had an opportunity to go to school in St. Louis for my undergraduate, St. Louis University, another Billikins. Jesuit. And the Billikins. Not many people know the What Billikins. is a Billikin? Do you, can you tell me what a Billikin is? So when I was finishing up my undergrad, I go back to Cincinnati, worked for University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. It was the Friday after Thanksgiving, and I'm listening to a radio and one of the sports people was talking about Billiken and all this other stuff, and they said, whoever can call and tell us what a Billiken is, you win two free Bengals tickets for the weekend. So, of course, I dial up real quick. Well, you know, a Billiken um, is really a mythical image. Think of an Eskimo Buddha. And there was a coach in St. Louis, and when St. Louis University had a football team, and he had a really good couple of games, you know, 5-0, and all this stuff, and reporter's in his office and says, Coach, what's that on your desk? He said, well, I was in a trip up to Alaska, and I was at a trading store up there, and I saw this thing, and they say it's a billiken. You rub it on its belly, and it gives you good luck. <laughs> so next thing you know, next game they win, so that reporter's put Bender's Billikens win again. And that's how St. Louis became the St. Louis Billikens. See, there you go, man. St. Louis Billiken history right here yeah. on the Main Street session. And you know a little bit about St. Louis, too. I, I do. Know. Lived up there five or six years and just long enough to be brainwashed to be a Cardinals fan. And you know, it's a great city, great area. So, and St. Louis University is a fantastic university. Okay, so you did all that. I did all that. Then I got my Master's <clears throat> of Health Administration at another Jesuit school, Xavier University, uh, the Musketeers. Nice. And then as part of that program, you have to do like a year residency training program. And I figured I've been in the Midwest my whole career. So I looked at places around, think around the edges of the United States. Mm-hmm. So San Diego to Galveston to so you wanted to branch out and get away a little get bit. Get away, yeah. Tampa and all that. And I had a nun in my class who had an association with one of our Franciscan nuns, Sister Linda Constantine. For those who know Sister Linda, she was joyfulness of spirit. Everything mm-hmm. was joyful about her. She said, why don't you talk to this nun? You might want to go to Baton Rouge. So I called her up one evening and she said, well, why don't you come down and visit? Went down visit, felt real good about it. I was interviewing everything. And they offered me a one-year residency first compared to anybody else. So I took the deep faith, said, I'm doing it. My buddies kept on saying, do you got to go wear shoes to go to work or not? You know, so right. here I've been now almost 30 years. And you are wearing shoes for those wearing, that can't see right. at home. You are and I've been here shoes. almost 30 years now. So I have more time of being in Louisiana than been out of Louisiana. That's awesome. That's so it's good. It's been great. It's been a great career. 
You know, it's interesting to ask you about kind of your background. And, I mean, every stop along the way, basically you're talking about mission, you know, where you went to undergrad, where you got your your uh, your secondary degree, where where you went to do your first, you know, job placement. I mean, mission kind of seems like it's one of the things that kind of drives you. And uh, for those that don't know Arlie of the Lake, it's all about mission. Uh, you know, there's a lot of successful businesses in Louisiana, but I don't know if I know many that at its core is as mission-driven as you all are. And that starts with, quite frankly, the sisters. Give for those that maybe aren't familiar with with the lake system and our lay of the lake, the hospital. Yeah. What is that mission like? What is that 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 genesis that comes from the sisters like? Yeah, and I'll I'll describe it. You know, back in 1911, we had six nuns coming from predominantly Europe, travel to the Atlantic, got on a train, thought they were going to set up shop in Pineville. Had a bishop in Pineville who said, "Hey, I need a sanitarium for a place of the sick." And that's where they thought their first mission was going to be. And they're the Franciscan missionaries, so they're missionaries. And when they realized they didn't have any, the, the bishop didn't have any money, there was another bishop, Bishop Ano, up in Monroe, who knew there was a bunch of nuns looking around by Alexandria. So they get a telegraph or whatever, and boom, next thing you know, they're up in Monroe. And they started up St. Francis Sanitarium back in 1913. And then... 1923, they came to, to Baton Rouge. So St. Fran- Francis was the first? St. Francis was our first hospital. Oh, really? I did not realize and, that. Uh, and St. Francis in Monroe is... And that's the hospital you came from I was originally. there for four years. For four years, yeah. Um, during my, my tenure with the, the sisters. And, you know, I always describe it. It's um, pretty remarkable of these religious women. And uh, we say we have tough times. You know, they actually had the first pandemic, yeah. not, not the second pandemic. They right. dealt with it. They had a lot of racial injustice issues yep. back in the day. They dealt with it, and they made hard decisions. Mm-hmm. And um, I always wondered, I said, you know, it's like a family business. And I always said, man, you know, I talked to some of the nuns that have been there for a long time. How was it like? Well, the dinner table was where we made all the big decisions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mother Gertrude Hennessy, uh, Hennessy Boulevard is where the lake is placed. And, you know, she she was a visionary, and she decided that it was time to move from the old lake to the new place. But, um, man, powerful women. And still today. Still today. Uh, we have 14 sisters, um, all in Louisiana. We're, we're a very small Catholic health system as it looks at other Catholic health systems. It's a, a worldwide order of sisters, headquartered in Paris. It's uh, been there one time, and I always describe it. It's like going to 30 grandmothers' house at the same time. <laughs> you know, they want to... They want to give you lemonade. They want to give you cookies. They just, and it's terrific. And, Sounds pretty um, peaceful to me. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, you know, one thing that the sisters have always said, are we doing enough? Mm-hmm. And we'll talk a little bit about more, I'm sure, as we go on uh, later on today on the discussion. But, you know, I've been so fortunate and blessed to work for a Catholic health system, especially one that still has that charism that still is there today. We're not a, a large system in which it's a, you know, four or five different orders have come together as one. You know, we're still pretty pure Franciscan. And you may not be large in the national grading scale, but in the in the Louisiana grading scale, you're a major player in, in the healthcare space and have been for a long time. So the system that you refer to, the FMOL system, the Franciscan Missionary of Our Lady, that is the system that has all the different uh, hospitals, I would guess, and entities underneath it. You are here, President and CEO of the Our Lady of the Lake Hospital, which, unless I'm wrong on this, the reason why it's called Early the Lake is because the, what people call here the Capital Lake, the lake by the state capital, that's where the first hospital was located. And then at some point it moved uh, a little south down to the Essen Lane area, but still kept the name of the lake right there. 
Um, so tell me a little bit about the, the hospital where you currently are the president and CEO. It's not just a hospital in the traditional sense, but you also have a teaching component. You work with LSU. Talk a little bit about what the, F, excuse me, the Arlie the Lake Hospital branch is all about and what you're trying to do there. Yeah, you know, Our Lady of the Lake, there's, there's not a lot of Our Lady Lakes in the country. And I always say we're one of the top 30 largest hospitals in the United States. Wow. When it relates to size and scale. We're about 1,000 beds in Baton Rouge. And uh, we have a lot of tentacles in a lot of different areas. We're just not a hospital. Uh, as you said, we're an academic. Um, when we did the cooperative endeavor agreement um, about 11 years ago, mm-hmm. Uh, we brought in the graduate medical education from Earl K. Long. We bought it from programs out in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. But we also have a university, the Franciscan Missionaries of Our Lady University. And uh, they provide a great level of uh, workforce for nursing, for graduate level programs. They do an awesome job and really are a pillar of education. Um, in and the Tina community. Holland, who runs that, is a, is a dynamic yeah, leader in her own right. Yeah. And so we got the university. We have a lot of senior services. We have nursing homes, Ollie Steele Burden. We have St. Clair Manor. Uh, we have some um, low-income housing, about almost 400 units. Uh, we have a very large physician group enterprise now that are employed physicians. That's over 500 physicians. Uh, we have a lot of um, joint ventures and a lot of different companies that people maybe aren't aware of. Mm-hmm. We have a joint venture with Baton Rouge Physical Therapy, as an example. We own part of that. And one that's probably been um, a great highlight for us has been our urgent care company and um, called, um, of course, Lake After Hours, or if you're up in Monroe, St. Francis After Hours. But it's the umbrella or corporate company is called Premier and Premier Health. And uh, we were um, – major investor in that. And we populated because we thought we had the secret recipe and we grew outside of Louisiana into other states. Uh, One of the largest first ones we did was IU Health, so Indiana University Health, and um, had a joint venture with them. We owned 50%, IU Health owned 50%. And it was a really good joint venture model in which you keep local brand, but expertise of our urgent care operator. Steve Sellers is the CEO of that company, and uh, we're one of the largest urgent care providers in the country, and uh, we just announced a a strategic and equity partnership with Trinity Health. Trinity Health is a Detroit-based second or third largest Catholic health system, and they're in 20-some states. Wow. So I would imagine we'll have one of our urgent care centers at least in half of the states around the country. That just gives you a little glimpse that our Lake is bigger than just a hospital. Well, all of that, and, and you didn't even get into yet uh, the little hospital you built across the street from Arlay of the Lake, which is the new children's hospital, which uh, you know, I had the privilege of touring, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago now, and not only is it a beautiful facility, but the, the connection you have with St. Jude and some of the life-changing care you can provide there for children who are having not just in this area, but also become maybe a destination spot Talk a little bit about the vision of the Children's Hospital that, that's coming up in the area. Yeah, and we've, um, we've been in the pediatric business since Sister Julie um, back in the 40s. And we actually had a dedicated wing for kids. And back then, you took a tonsil out, you stayed a week in the hospital. Today, you take a tonsil out and you're home by lunch. <laughs> right. I mean, it's just so different than what it was historically. And um, so we've always been the leader of pediatric care in Baton Rouge. And we've been uh, about 1990s or so, we decided to be a hospital within a hospital. So basically dedicate personnel, administration, and all that from the pediatric. And we always had this aspiration of building a freestanding children's hospital. 
And um, like a lot of things we do, we're very methodical, try to make sure it's the right decision, understanding this is a very large capital play for us, uh, but also recognize this could be one of the greatest gifts we give back to the community. And as we know, as we try to recruit companies into Baton Rouge, it's really about what's the level of care for their children. And having a separated, dedicated children's hospital that has the depth of clinical resources, has the great location, it has everything you want in a children's hospital, um, it's terrific. Actually, we were one of only few, I would say, mid-sized markets, 800,000 to 1 million or so, that did not have a freestanding children's hospital still in this country. And so we knew we met the test. Um, And so we opened in October of 2019. And I say it's our community's children's hospital. It was built by the community. Mm-hmm. We had $55 million of out um, capital um, campaign by donors. Um, we've had um, capital outlay by state, by the state legislators. Mm-hmm. Of course, the sisters put the biggest chunk of money in. Um, so it's this unified relationship we have amongst the whole community of caring for kids. And, and, and not only do we have the hospital, we have all the doctors, the pediatric subspecialists and all that. Uh, we also service, for example, East Baton Rouge school system. Every nurse in all those schools are employed by the Children's Hospital. And we're under one common electronic health record. So everything is interconnected. There's no other market in this state that has as much connection for pediatric care that we have here in Baton Rouge. So if you go to your kid, goes to school, your kid then goes to the Baton Rouge Clinic, goes sees a pediatrician, then has to go see your pediatric cardiologist. All that connectivity is one single record, and um, it's doing great. We, we're starting to see, um, you know, a lot of referral business outside Lake Charles, Alexandria, Lafayette, and, you know, it's, it's going exceptionally well. Well, it, it sounds like a, a, a great plan, but as the great uh, philosopher uh, Mike Tyson once said, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face, right? Yeah. And so the question was, about a year and a half ago, COVID hits. And, you you know, the system had put together all these resources, all this investment. You've got a great plan to kind of build and compete in the market. And all of a sudden, you're dealing with an influx of patients, a new virus that everyone's not quite sure. There were stories of reusing ventilators. and th- I mean, everyone was just kind of trying to grasp what the deal was. Talk a little bit about how that last year was, especially in the early stages. What was it like running a hospital in the teeth of the pandemic response? Appreciate the question, and you know it's been a little bit over a year. It was really earlier in March that after the Mardi Gras explosion in New Orleans, of course they got hit hard. New York got hit hard, mm-hmm. but we were right on the heels of New Orleans as it migrated up the river into Baton Rouge, and um, probably the most nervous I've ever been in my whole career, and probably in my whole life, because it was um, so unpredictable, and you didn't have resources that you traditionally have to run your day-to-day operations. Um, Trying to get access to personal protective equipment, your PPE. And we said from very day one, we have to protect our team. Mm -hmm. Number one, protect our team. We can't get our team in a position in which they have a higher incidence of getting COVID-19. So we did everything we could of protecting our clinical teams and trying to make sure we had access to all the respirators, to you name it, to make sure people are protected as much. We redesigned the whole intensive care unit. We took a lot of those machines that are inside the room next to the bed, and we pulled them out 
and we put tubes underneath the door so we can read and do all changes of all the things, infusion and your drippings and everything else from outside to, again, reduce the exposure of our And had you ever done anything like that before? Never in the history. This is like Apollo 13 type stuff. You're like figuring it out. Right. Right. You're you're in the middle of it all, and you said, oh, we got to figure something out because it's got to be different. Um, Testing. Testing was one of those things. It was it was non-existent. So how do you determine if someone has COVID or not COVID? Critical information you got to determine about how you treat the patient, and more importantly, to make sure that you cohorted all the COVID patients in one area and the non-COVID patients in the other, because you don't want all this cross contamination. Yeah. So early on, we we one of the benefits of the Children's Hospital opening in October and the pandemic ending in in February March was we had extra space. So the whole pediatric ER of the old became our COVID ER. So we were the only hospital in the state that had the capability of, of actually, you know, breaking it all out. And, um, but on the testing side, um, of all things, we asked LSU Vet School. So the LSU Vet School has a virology lab. And Dr. Cormier and their team, and I credit Dr. Katie O'Neill, who's been nothing more than a rock star, oh. not only within If you don't know that name, you haven't been paying attention the, the last year. That's right. She's the reason why we had football season last year is <laughs> because right. she got SEC to approve the plan. You know, she, she could have done better than 5-5 five and five as a I record, know, you know, but, but look, I'll, I'll cut her some slack on that At least one. we got something to do on a Saturday. <laughs> right. But the, the testing, so they had this virology lab, and we were at that point, you know, we, we came together as all the hospitals in the community – Women's Us, Bentner's General, and so on. And we said, okay, if there's any time, we got to act like one organization, it's today. Mm-hmm. So all of our facilities said, let's pretend there's no competition. There's no, we're all one organization. And so the CEOs and physician leaders, out of the gates, that's how we acted. So us, the Bentner's General and Women's, um, started a virology lab with the vet school. And we actually had testing capabilities more than anybody else in the state and predominantly anywhere else in the country because we did it kind of our makeshift and the bureaucracy that was out there calling, you know. The, okay, so stupid question right yeah. here. The way you test a horse for a virus, how different or same, similar is it the way you test a human for a virus? I, so that the, the, the vet school's lab had a coronavirus segment within the virology lab. Coronaviruses are flus, right? They're, they're, right? they're viruses, so they had it. They just had to find what's the COVID-19 virus. What, what, what is that actual, you know, COVID-19 that can be detected by predominantly nasal pharyngeal swabs and everything else to detect that? How do they build that instrument? So they had some COVID-19 activity, and they figured out how to wow. do it all. I mean, pff, remarkable. Just remarkable. Yeah, I guess and, that's where the partnership with uh, with LSU and the higher ed institutions helps because and, you already got a preconceived uh, relationship you can build off of. That's right. And you can just call up and you know, say, hey, I need help, and people respond. Pennington did a lot of work with us um, over the past year on the COVID-19. and But, you know, when you get back to the day-to-day, oh, how horrific the whole thing was. Yeah. And um, we actually had a reporter from the National Geographic come in and um, spending the day with us. And um, Ryan Cross, who's one of our communication executives, said it was so heart-wrenching when you sit there and you have sheets over beds because the patients died. Mm -hmm. Or when our operations team tells me we got to get a refrigerated truck because we have too many bodies and not enough morgue space. So, I mean, it's real. It's real. And um, no matter how long you're in the hospital business, you never 
you never get used to seeing those types of situations. And, and the, you know, the, the, one of the things that um, our Dr. Mary uh, Raven, um, who's our pa- uh, palliative care hospice physician, you know, she's the one who said, we got to get communication with the families. It's, it's, it's critical that we have communication. So she's the one who came up with FaceTime, you know, yeah. simple things, Apple. So we called up Apple. We need a bunch of iPads. And next thing you know, their team sending us iPads. And we got FaceTime going on. And, and uh, every morning, our critical care nurse would call whoever that parent would be or that spouse and say, let me tell you about the condition that so-and-so's in. And, yeah. you know, when you got some survivors and you thought for sure there's no way they're going to walk themselves out of the hospital, and then you got others that you think that they're there, and then next day – they pass. So. Yeah, and I think we all, unfortunately, if everyone thinks through, they know they have a family or a friend or someone they know that they were surprised, did so poorly, and surprised did so well. I mean, there's a lot of stories that we're going to hear and, and learn from one day. So let me ask you this. You, you know, you're, you, again, it's the mission coming through when you talk about what is important to respond to the community and all that stuff. But the other side of that is you're the CEO of a business enterprise, and you've got a bottom line, and you've got a spreadsheet, and you've got to worry about that. At the same time you're going through all that, you know, non-emergency services were being shut down, elective services being shut down. How was that from the business side of the hospital? What, 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 did, it, what did it feel like going through that when you, when you saw your spreadsheet all of a sudden go up, upside down? Sleepless nights, right? I <laughs> yeah. mean, but, but, you know, I, I remember, mean, you hate to think like a business, but the truth is you yeah, do run a business. Right, you know? and, and, and we, were, we were a community asset first and more so than the business side. And I remember when, when Katrina came and all the activity with Katrina happened and and I think it was uh, one of the national reporters had Terry Sterling mm-hmm. on the phone. You know, one of those like, you know, Fox News calling. Yeah. Oh, we were calling Terry Sterling. And the question was, what are you doing about your financials and all that? She said, God knows how to way to take care of us. It'll be fine. Yeah. We're not worried about it. We're not worried about it. Um, this situation, we did what a lot of hosp- other hospitals did and other businesses. You know, we told the people that could go home to go home. We told them to flex you know, please, if you can, yeah. flex down on your hours, trying to do whatever we can to do resources. And at the same time, we had such an influx of patients that we didn't have enough staff. Mm-hmm. And I kept on telling Nicole Tellyard, our chief nurse, plan for a week ahead, not a day ahead. Plan for a week ahead, not a day ahead. And because we didn't know when the peak was going to hit. We hit almost yeah. 250 patients at the peak. So we were opening units and all that, and then it was like, we need staff. We need nurses. So we sent out the SOS around the country. At that time, the rest of the country wouldn't seen what Baton Rouge was seeing or New Orleans or New York, so we were able to get staff from across the country. And some people would just raise their hand, I'm going to help the people in New Orleans or Baton Rouge. And, uh, but the financial side, um, the CARES Act, kind of like the PPP has been yeah. for a lot of businesses, uh, really helped for those organizations that were, I would say, early in increase in COVID volume. Um, But as time gone out, as we know, legislators and predominantly on the federal stuff, you know, what happened yesterday, they forget. Sure. So by summertime, when there was another big spike, there was not another big distribution Mm -hmm. of funds to help pay for all the things that happened to happen. Uh, We shut down elective surgeries. Uh, we've shut down a lot of our ambulatory clinics. We went to virtual clinics, all those things. And, uh, you know, millions and millions, 10 millions of dollars of lost revenue. And for our perspective, I think at the lake, I think we lost over $115 million in revenue. 
um, year over year, mm-hmm. uh, which is about 10% re- revenue reduction for the lake. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a big hit. And uh, look, in the teeth of it, you're so focused on the mission that becomes a secondary concern. But it's worth noting that, you know, as, as the business enterprise must, you know, sustain through those moments, it was a true hit. So let's fast forward to today. You know, we're no longer in, in those perilous times. We're coming out of it. Vaccine distribution seems to be rolling pretty well. It's now anyone over 16 is eligible to get one. Um, we are currently here at Lobby. We're partnering with LDH, trying to spread the word or encouraging people to go get vaccines. You know, what is it, what is it like in the hospital? If I were going to walk into the lake today, what's, does it feel like old times? Is it, is it still impacted? What, what's it's it look like today? It's still impacted. I think we had 20 COVID patients today, better than 200 and mm-hmm. some um, that we had historically. We, um, we're getting back to normal course of business, if you want to say. We're still masked up. We're still taking temperatures, limiting visitation to just one visitor, doing the things to no different than social distancing and all the things we're trying to do to make sure we protect our teams and protect our patients that come into the organization. A tremendous amount of deferral of care happened also during the past 12 months. And we're just now starting to get data and information. Todd Stevens, CEO of Mary Burr Perkins, and I mm-hmm. had a conversation about how less frequent mammographies are, colonoscopies. Dermatologist just saw, visits, we just skin saw cancer. Data, yeah. um, heart surgeries down 50% over the last 12 months, which means there's a lot of bad diseases going on right now. Are people that are saying, well, I'm going to pull, you know, wait a year on mammography mm-hmm. or go to my colonoscopy maybe in one year, two years. And what we're saying is get your vaccine, but don't defer your care. So if you're due for your colonoscopy, you're due for your. So you're encouraging people go back in, go, get your normal checkups, do everything like you normally would. Do, don't, take care of yourself. Don't hold back. Don't hold back and get your body back to where it needs to be and making sure you don't have a circumstance in which you deferral is going to cause some other big issue down the road for you. So let me ask you this. So, so now that I hate to say it's in the rearview mirror because it's not, we're still in the tail end of hopefully the, this response. But what are some of the long-term changes, not just maybe into your internal protocols, but also the, the competition in the health market in general? Like, do you think 10 years from now, the, the way the health market has evolved will be permanently altered by this last year or so? Or do you think, uh, you know, what is the longstanding impact of this last year we've all been through? The um, healthcare landscape is rapidly evolving. Um, competition is coming from areas that maybe nobody ever thought would come from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a big announcement a couple of years ago, JP Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway, and Amazon were going to three come together and evolve healthcare to a better s- style or whatever, cheaper, efficient, all the other things. And uh, Walmart just hired a healthcare CEO. If I would bet, Walmart is going to be pretty good at it. And um, what what you're going to see is these national players that maybe you didn't think were going to be in the healthcare space is going to be in the healthcare space. It is still a growing part of the GDP. You got a lot of people going from commercial to Medicare, age of the population, all that. It's that that hockey stick curve rate. The older you get, more consumption of healthcare resources you bring. As we get more and people in the Medicare, means more and more healthcare dollars are going to be out there. So these companies are trying to grab it. Amazon bought a small boutique company for I don't know how much it was, probably hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. What they had was a pharmacy license in all 50 states. The value was that they didn't have to go to the legislature or go to the, the, the Board of Pharmacy 
and sit there and say, Amazon wants to get a pharmacy license. Mm-hmm. Because I know all of our independent pharmacies, everybody else does not want an Amazon to come in and disrupt the pharmacy space. And uh, we're seeing that across many disciplines of, of, of healthcare. At the same time, the cost of healthcare continues to rise. Big concern. Big concern for our employers in this sure, state. Absolutely. And we hear um, it all the time. And we're doing everything we can. We have a great clinically integrated network. Dr. Vath has put together one of the best clinically integrated networks in which the goal is to be low value care. So low cost care. So low cost care means if I'm able to reduce that unit of cost, we're going after to reduce that unit of cost, whether if it's in the lab space and the pharmacy space, hospital care and all the other things we're trying to do. And uh, what we're seeing is other health insurance companies are trying to get into our space. United Healthcare is a good example. They have um, now very vertically integrated themselves. So United Healthcare, they got pharmacies, they got pharmacy benefits managers, they got imaging centers, they got surgical facilities. And so this, where, where you thought there was good segregation of insurance did insurance, healthcare did healthcare, pharmacy did pharmacy, it's all getting intertwined right now. Interesting. And, you know, we, we hear that in so many industries, quite frankly, you know, just because of uh, the way the global economy is changing, every industry has their own version of that, that it's a consolidated, uh, you know, game of, of, of high stakes poker that every industry has to go into. Well, look, um, I, we've, we've covered a lot of ground here. And I have no doubt that the healthcare market is going to change tremendously over the years and all along the way. I have no doubt, you know, you're going to be right in the thick of it when it comes to Louisiana. <clears throat> and you're going to be leading mission first like you always have and the, and the system always has. So um, I want to thank you for coming in and visiting, sharing some of your stories. And also just thank you for what you and your colleagues do day in, day out, especially the employers of the hospital system, the employees, excuse me, that over the last year really have put in a lot of time and effort and, you know, quite frankly, jeopardize their own health to protect the health of others. So uh, on behalf of our, our membership, definitely thank your employees for us and uh, keep fighting the good fight, man. And Will do. Any Appreciate closing it. words from a billiken? Yeah, yeah, from a billiken too. And, you know, we, we, you know, we talk about mentors all the time, sure. you know, people that make a difference in all of us and, you know, all of us as business leaders, uh, we always have that opportunity and we should always take advantage of that That's opportunity. Right. And I remember when I was very young, this was back in 2000. So I had the opportunity to run a hospital in Gonzales, St. Elizabeth <laughs> Hospital. And um, as you know, you were young at that period of time. I'm still young. Um, so. Right. So <laughs> we're not as young as we used to be 20 years ago. But uh, one of my mentors was your dad, Hickley. Yeah. And um, Hickley Wagus back, um, very successful businessman, helped started a publicly traded rehab um, business, rehab care. Yeah. And um, I, I see him in my daily environment every day. And he always told me, he said, you know, what we have to do is to take care of the community. And um, he came back from St. Louis to Gonzales because he knew that's where he grew up. That's his community. Yeah. And his goal was to have the best health care possible for people in his community. And um, I had the opportunity last Thursday down at the Homeless House, and we had a lot of the influencers of Ascension Parish down there. And Dr. Trevino, ER physician, who's the administrator down there, yeah. um, got up and told the story of where we are today. And you'd think 20, you know, 20 years ago when we did St. Elizabeth, you know, how impactful. And it's people because they're mentors. They educate, they deliver, they're committed to the community, and Thank you, but more importantly, thank your dad for all he's done in this community as well. Well, it is extremely kind of you to say, um, and, and I would tell you, he uh, he really loved 
you know, that system, that hospital. And, and I'll tell you a little quick side story that I think you probably know, but if not, you know, growing up in the 80s in Gonzales, um, he used to run what was called EAGH, East Ascension General Hospital, the local public hospital there. And it ended up shutting down for a myriad of reasons. The 80s were tough in Louisiana for a lot of reasons. But one of them was a new hospital was coming to down named Riverview. Mm-hmm. And Riverview Hospital came in and literally kind of shut EAGH down. So in my view, that new hospital put my dad out of work. Mm-hmm. Well, fast forward 30 years, he goes back to Gonzales. And instead of harboring a grudge, he goes back to that same hospital, which is now called St. Elizabeth's and part of the FML system, and did everything he could to make sure it was a success. And so it says a lot about the type of guy he was and also the type of system that he wanted to be involved with. And, um, you know, there's a nice plaque of him in that hospital today that uh, we really appreciate them putting up. Well, and you remember, you know, one of his close friends was Bob Davidge, CEO yeah, of the lake. Yeah, 100%. And uh, here we are, CEO at the lake, with the, with the Waggus back looking at each other right now. There you go. You know, 30 years later. The world is round. Yep. The world is round. Well, thank you for your time. No, well, thank you. I appreciate it. And um, that has been our latest session of, excuse me, a version of Main Street Sessions and one that I really enjoyed. So thanks for coming in. And uh, stay tuned for next time where we'll profile another pro- prolific, impactful leader in Louisiana and tell you some of the stories of what they're doing and where they're going.